Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number 530, January the 28th, 1995, £1.45. For those that listened to this podcast last week, you will remember that the Wild Hearts popped into the Kerrang! offices and paid a visit. And whilst they were there, they smashed up the offices and did about £2,000 worth of damage. Luckily for us, Kerrang! have managed to get things back together and they've put together this week a jam-packed issue. It's a really good one. Uh, so I'm not going to you know, talk too much at the start here. I think the best thing to do is just dive straight in. So this week's cover stars, there isn't a single cover star. We've got a picture of Eddie Vedder, a picture of Lane Staley and a picture of Kurt Cobain. Eddie Vedder talks to the airwaves. Nirvana man growl back in action. Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains in Supergroup. Grunge ain't dead. Plus... Kurt, was it murder? Shocking Seattle report. Also, the Black Crows in Heroin Shocker, Megadeth in Censorship Sensation, Thunder, new LP reviewed, Kerrang! Scribe joined Paradise Lost, Jim Martin x Faith No More Man Live, and world exclusive, Zach Wilde joins Guns N' Roses. See? Quite a packed issue. Uh, just before we get cracking, there are no singles this week, so don't expect to hear any singles. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram at Karangback Issues, Twitter, KarangPod, and email karangbackissues at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to leave a review for us at Spotify or Apple Music, that would be bloody lovely. No problem if you can't be bothered. That's absolutely fine. We start this week's issue of Karang, where we always begin with a swift word from the editor. I hate that word, grunge. It sounds horrible, it has horrible connotations. So why do we carry on using that word? Why do you carry on using it? Why does anybody carry on using it? Because it's pretty handy, I guess. I mean, how else would you describe all this detuned post-punk sub-metal jive that scarred the face of rock music for the last five or six years? This issue brings you the latest from Seattle, aka Grungeville, USA. Hopefully, it will help eclipse some of the tragedy we all felt last year when Kurt decided to end it all. You'll find a whole ton on the bands that have spearheaded a rock revolution. Bands like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. All of whom are as vital now as they were when they first crawled out of their respective rehearsal sheds. All of whom now need to stop themselves from lapsing into the cliches of rock megastardom. There's a world exclusive interview with a new Pearl Jam Alice in Chains supergroup Mad Season. Check it out on page 38. What's more, we hit Seattle to see what's going on and to get the word from the Jet Cities, coffee bars and record stores. There's also a shocking report that has surfaced in the US concerning Kurt's death. We'll leave you to make up your own minds on whether there's any truth in it. Elsewhere in this week's blast of wargtastic mega wattage, you'll also find a ton more on what's going on in the world of all things hard and heavy. Megadeth faced the censors on page 10. Guns N' Roses look like they could be set to nab yet another new guitar player on page 8. Thunder's long-awaited new LP is dissected on page 42. Ex-Faith No More Man Jim Martin returns to the fray on page 18. And a Kerrang! Scribe auditions for Paradise Lost on page 12. We think that these stories are on the very cutting edge of what's going on in metal right now. We hope you'll agree. Till next week, stay clean. Phil Alexander, editor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. And we start this week with Kurt, was it murder? Kurt Cobain did not commit suicide. 
He was murdered, according to incredible claims currently causing shockwaves throughout America. Amazingly, these allegations come from a former deputy sheriff named Tom Grant, who has investigated the case on behalf of Kurt's widow, Courtney Love. Now in business as a private investigator, Grant announced his claim to foul play on a US radio station, newspapers and magazines all over the states have been quick to pick up on the reports. Grant says he first started working for Courtney on April 3rd, five days before Kurt Cobain was found dead. Shot for his head at his home in Seattle, Grant was hired after Kurt went missing from the LA Drug Rehab Clinic where he was undergoing treatment. The private detective had been looking into the case for eight months before making his sensational announcement. There is no doubt in my mind that he was murdered, Grant tells US newspaper The Star. Kurt was unconscious or so drugged at the time that he didn't realise what was happening. I believe somebody held the shotgun in his mouth, put his finger on the trigger and pulled it. Grant also claims that Kurt's suicide note was a forgery. He says everyone knew that the singer was unhappy and wanted to escape the pressures of fame and claims that Kurt had written a letter talking about quitting the music business that he had come to loathe. Grant insists though that it wasn't a suicide letter. He says the only reference to Kurt taking his own life, the last two lines were added by someone else. Grant came to this conclusion after having the letter magnified. Grant also refutes police claims that because there was a chair propped inside the inside door of Kurt's home, nobody else could have been in the room when the gun was fired. And he alleges that at least two people knew that Kurt was dead two days before his body was found and didn't say a word. Grant's allegations seem spurious at best. Why, after all, would anyone want to kill Kurt Cobain? Especially since he seemed hell-bent on doing the job himself. Asked by Rolling Stone magazine about her husband's overdose in Rome earlier last year, Courtney Love said that he had a definite suicidal urge. Look at his interviews. In each and every one, he mentions blowing his head off. Grant's theory that Kurt was worth more dead to somebody than he was alive also lacks credibility, considering Nirvana's already huge profile before their frontman's untimely demise. Stop Press and Terrorvision have landed a support slot on one of REM's stadium shows. Look out for the full story and some words of reason from the pole-pusting Bradford Buggers next issue. White Zombie, contrary to rumour, will not be supporting Megadeth on the latter's impending UK tour. Neither, it seems, will North Carolina Bruiser's Corrosion of Conformity, who are also thought to be in the running. Latest reports link Headswim with a place on the free band bill. Killing Joke play a special performance at Tower Records, Piccadilly, London on January the 26th. The event kicks off at 4pm with the band performing their new single Jaina finally out this week as well as cuts from their current LP Pandemonium. And so, another week and another Guns N' Roses story. Zach Wilde has been writing and jamming with multi-platinum LA megastars Guns N' Roses. The pride and glory Ozzy Osbourne Axeman made the announcement exclusively to Kerrang! during an interview this week and Zach's astonishing revelations marked the most promising Guns news in years. Zach jammed with GNR after an invitation from controversial band frontman Axl Rose and becomes another confirmed co-conspirator alongside Paul Hugay. Incredibly, Kerrang heard this week that contrary to rumour, Paul Hugay is probably not a fully-fledged member of Guns N' Roses and is mainly only a writing partner for Axl. This, of course, leaves the vacant guitar post wide open. How much Guns Axeman Slash knows about the situation remains open to conjecture. The six-stringer was unavailable for comment as Mayhem went to press this week. Megadeth have been clobbered over the controversial sleeve artwork for latest LP Euthanasia. The Back on the Boil metal mob are currently embroiled in a major war raging over their infamous Pegging Out the Babies picture, which also features in latest hit single Train of Consequences. The album cover was initially banned in both Singapore and Malaysia, as well as causing major consternation in certain parts of the US, Canada and Germany. 
but the Megadeth fearless foursome have refused to compromise and come up with alternative artwork. I thought that America had strict censorship laws, bassist Dave Ellison tells Mayhem this week, but in Canada, a number of small mum and dad type record stores were not at all happy about selling euthanasia because of the cover. And in Malaysia, the government actually went as far as to ban it. Capital Records asked us to change the cover, but we refused. You know what? The album has now been released in Malaysia and it's already gone gold. Chalk up a victory for Megadeth. The southern part of the US is Bible Belt country, so they were not at all happy about the cover either. But this is a classic example of judging a book by its cover. The band have ridden through these problems and have chalked up huge sales of euthanasia in Canada and America in both territories. It's now platinum, one million sales. We have a saying in the band, get another nail. That means we've got another gold or platinum album and need another nail to hang it up. Well, with euthanasia, we've been getting a lot of nails recently. Chaos UK, the enduring Bristol punks have just returned from the States where their tour with I Hate God ended in uproar. Adding to their already dubious reputation, the band's US jaunt saw them accused of starting riots at their own gigs and they are even said to have played on while lit up by police helicopters. There were a few good uns, guitarist Gamba tells Mayhem. At the Sacramento skateboard party we had a lot of fighting, but we just kept on playing and let them fight. It ended up with police helicopters and people running over buildings. The police came in and they were fucking shuffling everyone around with their sticks. In Huntington Beach, chuckles the aptly named vocalist Chaos, we played in this big posh hotel like something out of Dallas. The hotel people shit themselves when we turned up because we weren't quite what they'd expected and they didn't quite understand what punk rock was. Then all of the fucking nutters turned up, about 250 of them who had been following the tour, and they proceeded to get pissed out of their fucking heads, recalls Chaos. About halfway through the set, they trashed the place and pulled the lighting rig down, so the promoters called the old Bill who came in and beat everyone to pieces. They grabbed our bassist Marvin on stage and said if he didn't stop playing they'd smash him in his guitar. So he started playing ACAB, all coppers of bastards by the foreskins, and then they tear gassed the place, adds Gabba. We had to get out there uh, by leaving our equipment in there. Meanwhile, it's strongly rumoured that Sepultura's Max Cavalera is so taken by Bristol's finest that he is setting up a handful of gigs in South America where Sepultura will support Chaos UK. It's great comments, Chaos, but I wouldn't like to think that the only reason we draw a crowd is because Max from Sepultura says he likes us. Records news and Girls Against Boys, the hotly tipped US noise combo, issue a new single through Touch and Go on February the 20th. It's titled Kill the Sex Player, available on CD only. It will also feature three live tracks. Learned it, Sexy Sam and Let Me Come Back. Kill the Sex Player will also be featured on the forthcoming soundtrack to the movie Clerks alongside contributions from The Jesus Lizard, Corrosion of Conformity, Alice in Chains and Soul Asylum. The album will be issued through Columbia in May. Girls Against Boys play a one-off UK show on March the 18th and the London Hybrid Garage. Head Swim, the Ecolectic Essex Combo release a new single through Epic on February the 13th. Crawl is taken from recent album Flood and will be available in three formats, 12-inch vinyl, cassette and CD. Rancid, the much-touted US punks who have now committed their future to Epitaph Records will have their album Let's Go made available shortly with a limited edition single featuring the new tracks Roots Radical, I Wanna Riot. The band will begin work on their third album for the label imminently. Tour news and Collective Soul, the Georgia band have been forced to cancel their forthcoming UK dates. This is due to increasing demands on their time. All tickets bought for these dates can be returned to point of purchase for a full refund. The band will issue their second album through East West on March 14th. Kill to this, the band who recently did well in the Kerrang Readers Poll are all set to undertake a UK European tour shortly. However, they are seeking a new drummer. 
Interested parties should send a tape biography to Rob Rhodes, 176 Dirk Hill Road, Bradford. Telephone 0274 578 472. The UK's largest record fair takes place in London on January the 28th and 29th, 10am to 5pm, with over 500 stalls covering all kinds of rock and metal. It's being held in the Horticultural Hall, Vincent Square, about 5 minutes from Victoria Station. Reef, the West Country gang, will be supporting Caius at the following dates. Leeds Cockpit, February the 1st, Stoke Wheatsheath 2nd, London LA 2nd. They will then support Deus at Bristol Fleece and Firkin, February the 6th, Derby Warehouse 7th, Manchester Boardwalk 8th, Newcastle Riverside 9th, Sheffield Leadmill 11th, Birmingham Edwards number 8th, 13th, Portsmouth Wedgwood Rooms 14th, Cambridge Boat Race 15th, London LA 2 16th. Reef will also be playing their own headlining shows at Corby the Works February the 10th, London Club Magic 25th, Middlesex University March the 1st and Brighton the Richmond on the 3rd. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens. Starting this week with Don K in New York. So did you hear about the inventive way that someone slapped Glenn Danzig with a lawsuit? It seems that artist H.R. Geiger is suing the evil Elvis for unlawfully reproducing his artwork. Geiger did the cover for Danzig Free on various pieces of merchandise. Anyway, when Danzig were recently in town for a gig, Glenn was slapped with a lawsuit by a guy who surfed his way over the heads of the crowd and had himself bundled onto the stage, where he served Glenn with the papers. But there's no truth to the rumour that Glenn proceeded to whip this poor guy with his weight belt. Carnivore recently played one of their occasional reunion shows at the Limelight, with Type of Negative's Pete Steele, guitarist Mark Piavanetti and drummer Louis Bateau slaying through a collection of faves from the two Carnivore albums for a packed house. The rest of the bill included Screw, The Spud Monsters, Brazilian Heavy's Overdose who shared a debut split EP with Sepultura way back when, and local faves Bible Black. Pete is now out with his full-time band supporting Pantera. The typo album Bloody Kisses is fast approaching the 200,000 sales mark in the US. Ozzy Osbourne has pulled into town for a few weeks to rehearse new material for his album at the plush Sony Music Mariah. Along for the ride with the Oz is Zach Wilde, Giza Butler and drummer Dean Castronovo. If we sneak into rehearsals, we'll let you know. We end this column on a tragic note. Sean McDonald, the 29-year-old singer for acclaimed New York act surgery, died on January 11th in a Brooklyn hospital after slipping into a coma, apparently brought on by a massive asthma attack. Surgery were peers of other New York bands like Helmet and Prong, and their excellent first major label album, Shimmer, was released for Atlantic last summer. A press statement issued by his bandmates reads in part, Words cannot adequately express the deep feelings of sorrow and emptiness left behind in Sean's absence. Our brother is gone and we will miss him and remember him always. Our condolences go out to all Sean's friends and family. US News Extra The Ramones are in New York's Baby Monster Studios working on a new album due out later this year through Chrysalis. A Led Zeppelin tribute album is due out in early March. Contributions are set to come from Helmet, Tori Amos and Stone Temple Pilots among others. Full story soon. Now we join Lisa Johnson in Los Angeles. Ex-porn star and friend to the metal stars Tracy Lords has joined the cast of the hit TV show Melrose Place as a meddling new roomie who lures the rather impressionable character Sydney into a religious cult. 
Tracy Lords' character also tries to work her way into Sydney's life a la the film Single White Female, becoming the roommate from hell, going after her sister's boyfriend Jake and destroying the soap's legendary shooter's bar. In real life, Lords turns up at the ultra-fabulous club uh, Drag Strip 66 to judge the club's annual Miss Drag Strip beauty pageant. The job was a cinch for Lords, who said she was judging on the contestants' titties. Oh, and she also has a new album due out in March through MCA. But don't expect much rocking, it's a dance album. Poor, the acclaimed Kansas City Slackers are recording their long-awaited follow-up to 1993's Dragline. Meanwhile, they're searching for a new bass player as they record. Apparently, Poor's original bassist, Charles Bryant, was tired of the rock and roll thing. Seattle's latest new buzz band, Presidents of the United States of America, headlined the Viper Room on the Sunset Strip and Weldham. The scene was an A&R feeding frenzy, yet tucked away in the deserted corner was the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Anthony Kiedis, bobbing his head and digging the quirky trio. He was soon joined by American recording supremo Rick Rubin and they watched the band from a stage-side booth. Not to go unnoted, also in attendance were Fishbones' Angelo Moore, taking a break from work on the band's new album, and Counting Crows' Adam Duritz. Geffen are thought to have let go quite a few acts in recent weeks. Rumours are plentiful, but as it stands, those without deals at Geffen allegedly include Jackal and ex-Poison guitarist Richie Kotzen. Jackal are rumoured to be in the process of signing to Columbia. More news on these reports when we have it. Beaver, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts. And it's another Kerrang! World exclusive. Former Faith No More guitarist Jim Martin returns with his new outfit, Cootie Club. And the big K is there with the world's first on-the-spot report. So the first live review this week is for Jim Martin's Cootie Club, live at the Trocadero San Francisco, Monday, January the 16th. Reviewed by Stefan Shirazi, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. It's enough to warm the cockles of your heart. For those who have had to endure at close quarters the bitter split between Faith No More and Jim Martin, for those who bear no ill will towards either party, for those who wish both bands the very best in their future musical endeavours, it was ventricle warming stuff to see the hairy behemoth motherfucker on the right hand of the stage, legs spread, head banging, those trademark red and black specks threatening to fly off. We'd only gotten on the bill a few nights ago thanks to Testament and Chuck Billy. I wasn't nervous at all. Indeed, we were about to achieve a goal we've been aiming for, which was to actually play a gig. The main objective was to see how the band operated as a unit, and in my opinion, the band did very well together. This band could perform under any circumstances. So said the mighty Jim Martin right after his new outfit short, sharp set. Welcome to Fatso and his crew. A group of musicians largely unknown except for bassist Ron Holzner, who's familiar from his tenure with hugely underrated Doomster's Trouble. No, you won't have heard of Cho Cabril on drums or Bob Keith the vocalist, but very soon you will. Rest assured, Fatso's army is tough, solid and as heavy as a dump truck of granite moving like a big wall of doom into your ears. Keith giving some heroic wails of anguish and anger. The man has an appearance suggesting that he's the bastard son of Greg Allman and Ricky Lee Jones. He never takes his mirror shades off, you look around for the Harley Davidson, he must surely have parked somewhere close by, with the leather, the denim and the gang colours. The Hells Angels would surely welcome a man like Bob Keith into their ranks. The lead fisted riffs of Jim Martin have just got louder, bleaker and uglier, swinging like fat clubs on Fatso's world. 
where friend and sometime tennis partner Jason Newsted from one of those other Bay Area bands steps into the boards to bark himself into vocal insanity, twisting around Martin's screwy fret antics and doing a royal alien impression, ignoring the attendance of his three bandmates, add fear, testimony and the fat man for good measure. The behemoth has regained his live wings. Believe this, Jim Martin's Cootie Club is one to check out. It was a strong start with fine material leaving Martin safely stomping down to darker metal crusted paths. We want more. The next review is for Mad Season, live at the RKC NDY Seattle, Saturday December 31st. Reviewed by Kevin Roberts, this gets electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. Supergroups suck. And we need another band from Seattle like a hole in the head, right? So you approach Mad Season with skepticism. You're aware of the calibre of their lineup, Pearl Jam, Addison, Chain, Screaming Trees, which makes you curious. You've also heard that Mad Season could even be called a project band, a prospect which is enough to make you stampede for the door. Their pedigree is impeccable. There's lead guitarist Mike McCready, vocalist Lane Staley and drummer Barrett Martin, three exceptional talents who between them have played on some of the finest LPs of the decade. But still, you can't get the word supergroup out of your head. But forget about each member's past history and take Mad Season at face value and they are incredible. They're so good in fact that you feel guilty for ever having doubted them. This isn't a vehicle for rock star posturing or muso ramblings. It is just an awesome band. Even the song titles make the adrenaline flow. River of Deceit, Jungle Song, Lifeless Death and I'm Above. Each begins on the tormented slow burn before exploding to a blazing crescendo. Phrases like contemporary blues and freedom rock are banded around. Nasty overused phrases but perfectly apt for this onslaught. Mad Season are so together after just four shows that they could have been playing together for years rather than weeks. Perhaps it's because they can all go back to their respective day jobs with no worries. But Lane in particular revels in this freedom. The rarely seen fragility of his voice is exposed here in genuinely touching moments. He even smiles and jokes with the crowd. It's my New Year's resolution not to fuck this one up, he says before launching into a cover of John Lennon's I Wanna Be A Soldier. As a parody of their status, Mike straps on a double neck guitar, strums the opening to Stairway To Heaven and then belts out another blues tinged riff. Bassist Baker's Saunders remains cool in shades. They close with a 10 minute jam which starts a whisper and slowly peaks in a mind splitting growl. Mike trashes his guitar while Lane passes t-shirts into the crowd. Happy fucking New Year, he laughs. Indeed, it won't get better than this. The next review is for Reef, live at Rock City, Nottingham, Saturday, January the 14th. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets static out of five, three out of five. Rock City is lung unfriendly. Cigarette smoke hangs thick in the air as the Rock City audience ignore Her Majesty's government health warnings. Reef vocalist Gary possibly wishes that he'd taken a bit more care of himself too, having injured a leg in a heated kickabout on the footy field, appearing to be in some pain as he gingerly hobbles around in what space the small stage allows, often clinging to part of the lighting rig for support. Touted by some as one of the most likely of the new breed of British rock bands to make waves this year, Reef don't really appear to be letting the hype go to their heads despite having signed to Sony's new S2 label. It's all strictly low-key at the moment. There's an independent single, a virtually anonymous starring role in a mini-disc commercial and a support tour with, of all people, Paul Weller to look back on. But it's hardly in-your-face stuff. Showcase club gigs like this one will only improve their street-level profile of Reef's triply unique bastardised funk metal. Part Primus, Stiltskin, Stevie Salas and the Chili Peppers, with a hint of some soulful black crows slung into the pot for good measure. The crowd go crazy when the second song turns out to be Feed Me. 
It's noticeable that Gary leads the band through um, it with the distinct aura of a 90s Jim Morrison as the guitar claws itself deep into the flesh. They have almost a blues thing going with single cut choose to live until Gary suddenly goes mental. The pace powers up again. Bassist Jack revolves on the spot like somebody's dinner in a microwave and Reef collectively just go into overload. Yes, this one is special. Despite the attempts of Naked with the kind of 70s influenced metal vibes Stevie Salas would not approve for and set close at end to charm their way inside the soul. What's apparent here is that Reef just need to work that bit more on the songwriting to match their ability as players. Once that's achieved, there should be no stopping them. Next we have Sick of It All, Understand and Strife live at the Marquee London Sunday January the 15th. Reviewed by Morat, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. Strife are hardcore by numbers. The frontman has a shaven head and an X on the back of his hand, indicating that he's an abstainer from things alcoholic and narcotic. Presumably, he wants you to be straight edge too, so you can afford one of the 30 quid jackets in the foyer that say Strife Straight Edge, but instead he whines about unity between songs, the first of which is unoriginally titled Through and Through. Despite all this, the band are worth keeping an eye on. They have unquestionable power and enthusiasm, and even with a lack of notable tunes, they manage to get the crowd going. Which is more than can be said for Understand, who get the odd glass chucked at them and never really raise more than a ripple of applause. Part of the problem is that when sandwiched between two full-on hardcore acts, the South End lads look rather tame. They have an ability to write great tunes, though the pace could do with livening up. Understand could well be on the top of the pops in six months, but the hardcore nut is much tougher to crack. Sick of it all, I've been bashing away at it for 10 years now and are finally seeing rewards. Not that they look like they care so long as uh, we all have a good time. Vocalist Lou Collar appears wearing a police helmet. Hello, 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 motherfuckers. From then on, we get an hour of mayhem and some of the best live hardcore since Biohazard trod these same boards. The free title tunes scratch the surface, just look around, and We Stand Alone are all outstanding in a memorable set. And oldies like Injustice System never fail to please. Sick of it all could have played anything tonight, so long as they did it with his style and ferocity. An excellent rendition of Sham 69's classic Ballstall Breakout punctuates an encore we could have watched all night. Indeed, no one was in the least sick of it all. The final review this week is for Moist, live at the Wedgwood Rooms, Portsmouth, Wednesday, January the 18th. Reviewed by Paul Rees, this gets static out of 5, 3 out of 5. David Usher, Moist's doe-eyed frontman, smiles a lot. This is no doubt something to do with the fact that a handful of schoolgirls are baying for him to remove his clothes. Where Vedder or Cornell would scowl, Usher grins. But then, Moist are not an alternative to anything. Rather, they stand at the forefront of the fledgling post-grunge commercial rock movement, which means that they don't wear spandex or have large-breasted women cavorting in their videos. But they do write easily digestible songs with big choruses. Tonight, they could be the Happy Days house band playing Pearl Jam. They have absorbed the anthems from 10, simplified them to the point where they could sell Wrigley Spearmint gum and stripped away all the po-faced sincerity and angst. In truth, they are hugely average, but this will not matter. Bon Jovi are hugely average and they've made more than enough money to buy Seattle. No one need worry about the lyrics to push because at heart it's a good old-fashioned sing-along. Moist get away with an abysmal cover of the Rolling Stones' Miss You because none of their prospective audience are old enough to recall the original. Nope, for pre-teen Portsmouth, Moist rock. To their credit, Moist do not take themselves too seriously. Usher gaffer tapes bassist Jeff Pierce to a mic stand towards the end and wrestles guitarist Mark McCowie to the ground during one of the more turgid tunes. The singer, in fact, gropes his colleagues far more than is reasonable. 
but moist are fresh and clean and as mass marketable as Niagara Falls. The schoolgirls of Portsmouth could take them home to meet mum, safe in the knowledge that they'd say please and thank you. Naturally, they'd go down the storm. We now come to the first piece of Kerrang's Grunge Ain't Dead special. Is Grunge Dead? Has Seattle become the LA of the 90s, home to a thousand bad bands? Lisa Johnson checks out the changing face of Rock City, USA. It's a great big little city on the shores of North America in the Pacific Northwest. It's been called the home of grunge, home of that tuned down to D sound. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, Tad and Mudhoney have all spun the cloth over the last five years. But as the rest of the world sits back and lounges around in their brand new slacker flannel from the gap, what's become of Seattle? Kurt is no longer with us. Alice in Chains might have split. Soundgarden are reported to have given up touring. Mudhoney have gone to ground. Tad hit label problems and have just signed to Atlantic. Screaming Trees main man Mark Landigan is missing in action. And Queensryche have a new album. Does this mark the end of grunge as we know it? Grunge as a lifestyle will always exist as long as lumberjacks wear flannel. But as a music phenomenon, is it over? Grunge is a media invented term, so by the time it was acknowledged as this big commercial happening thing, it ceased to exist, explained Seattle native and sub-pop press agent Niles Bernstein. The term grunge was always used sarcastically by everyone involved. When it was acknowledged as a movement, it was pretty much over. Also distressed about the commercialism of grunge is Seattle musician Rick Friel, who's been around the scene so long he saw Soundgarden as a free piece with Chris Cornell on drums. As a kid, Friel starred in a spandex and hairspray band with Pearl Jam's Mike McCready. The Rice Krispies ad went grunge, Friel groans. They have snap, crackle and pop, the Rice Krispie guys in Seattle with music that sounds like teen spirit and little kids eating cereal wearing flannel. It's terrible, I hate it. As a fashion term and marketing tool, grunge is dead. But as a style of music, it's not. It's exciting, and grunge was around before any of the Seattle bands with the Stooges and the MC5, even Alice Cooper. It's fun music to play, says Kurt Block of the Fastbacks, the punk pop combo who once had Guns N' Roses bassist Duff McKagan thump in the tubs. Kurt is also the brother of Walls Owl. But there's too many bands in Seattle, bands, 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 and most of them are just dragging a dead carcass around. To be fair, the groups that started that scene are still good. But who wants to hear 200 different incarnations of Mudhoney and Soundgarden? Love Battery drummer Jason Finn has been around the Seattle scene for years. He also works behind the bar at the Comet, a popular grunge watering hole and books bands for the Moon Club. Finn reckons the true originator of grunge is Mudhoney guitarist Steve Turner, who founded the seminal Seattle band Green River with Pearl Jam, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amem. Grunge is Steve Turner's guitar sound, nothing else Finn shrugs. But certainly, the music scene has helped the nightlife scene. Five years ago, the Comet was one of the only places to see live music. Now there's five or six rock clubs with three bands on every night of the week. So what's happening in Seattle right now? Not much, laments Rick Friel. A lot of bands are just starting up and it's an interesting time. After Nirvana got big, a lot of people moved here and started forming bands hoping to get signed. It only takes two or three really great bands to come from one city before it becomes a cultural mecca and rock bands want to move there. The influx of grunge wannabes has died down a bit and Nils Bernstein. And all the bad ones, which is 95% of them, are still being bad playing bad clubs. Most people come here to be in bands, and there's a million shitty bands. This is a bad band capital right now, claims Finn. It's like LA or something. Candlebox was snapped up by Madonna for her Maverick label at the tail end of the Seattle feeding frenzy, and their post-grunge appeal has netted platinum sales in the US alone. So are bands still being signed on the strength of being from Seattle? I think people have stopped looking in Sis Finn. Certainly if they're smart they have. 
People have this idea that Sub Pop has a monopoly on Seattle music, which isn't true, says Bernstein. We currently have very few Seattle bands. The only ones left are Super Suckers, Sunny Day Real Estate and The Fastbacks. Sub Pop's roster has previously included Nirvana, Mud Honey, Tad. More recently, the label has signed bands from outside Seattle. And if nobody will sign them, a lot of bands put out their own records. Both of Rick Friel's bands, Give and L Steiner, have independently funded their own releases, which are sold at gigs and in local record stores. Seattle is very supportive of its music scene. If you're in a bar or shopping in a major clothing store, you're more likely to hear a local band CD than the national top 20. During one afternoon at Sit and Spin, a popular eatery come laundromat, Nirvana's Unplugged in New York is followed by the latest from Satchel, local heroes fronted by Sean Smith, who also sang on the first album by Brad, Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard's side project band. The Seattle scene encourages a do-it-yourself attitude, but the general consensus is that there are no new good Seattle bands. I'm really into Silkworm right now, reveals Bernstein, but they've been around since 88. Jason Vint's current faves are Four Hour Mona and his own side project, President of the United States of America. Kurt Block digs Epitaph's Gas Huffer. Terry Farrell is co-founder of the El Recordo Records label. He also tends the bar at the fabulous new Temple Billiards joint. The Temple clientele still play an abundance of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains on the CD jukebox. Even 10, 10 times is too much of a good thing. After that lovely trip around the Pacific Northwest's finest city, we now return to grey, cold January in England, and the Kerrang readers have got a lot to say. Letter of the week in commun for communication begins this week, taking the name of metal in vain. There are 10 unforgivable things that have nearly made me give up my love of heavy rock. One, years ago seeing a whole display stand of ACDC for those about to rock albums at the entrance of Woolworths. Two, the incredible Bon Scott being replaced by a flat-capped pressed jean squawker. Three, 1993, no Donington. Four, extreme anywhere on the bill at Donington 94. Five, Bon Jovi currently abusing the very name of heavy rock. Six, the almost entirely death metal headbangers ball, not worth recording now, let alone watching. Seven, the amount of 10 to 14 year olds infesting concerts nowadays. Eight, Nirvana's Unplugged on sale in Tesco. Nine, watching Sepultura and fans being humiliated by a complete wanker on the word. And finally, the biggest letdown of all, 10, the almighty on top of the pops. Someone tell me it's a bad dream. A stunned almighty fan from New Milton. Hopefully this Kerrang cap might make you feel better editor. I have to congratulate Kerrang on a brilliant start to the metal new year. Why? Because flicking through issue 57, not only is there a cool interview with two cool frontmen, I wonder who they could be, eh? But I also came across the reincarnation of something great, Wolfsbane, or should I say, Stretch, making their mark on the road soon. I hope. We've all got to support Britain's bands and as far as I'm concerned, the guys in this band are some of the very best of British. Howling mad shithead from Oxford. What the fuck? Your readers poll showed that Motley Crue were the third worst band of 94 and their self-titled LP was the second worst album. Things don't normally fire me up like this, but there comes a time when you have to say, what the fuck? Are all of you who voted this fucking brain dead? Are you fucking serious? Have you actually heard it more than once? Okay, so commercially their album was a dead flop and they didn't do any gigs over here, but does that mean their brilliant self-titled album should be slagged off in this way? Is it too heavy for you pussycats who prefer their cockroach stuff? Are all of you jealous because they write better riffs than Machine Head? 
Slap on Uncle Jack, Hooligans Holiday or Hammered for Proof. So Motley Crue aren't so popular now, but that doesn't stop them from being a fucking cool band who have actually written the best album of 94. Mike Peake even said it was a classic in his review. And how the fuck can Megadeth's brilliant Euthanasia be voted the 5th best album of 1994 while at the same time the 5th worst? Surely this is proof that readers' polls are a total bollocks. It's a bit of fun I know, but I can't believe how pissed off I am about it. B. Rose, Abingdon. Ricky Warwick, whose side are you on? How can you slag your hardcore followers and tell them to get a life when I'm watching you on Top of the Pops changing your lyrics so you can suck the dicks of all those corporate pop producing bastards? Get a life yourself. Ricky's dick from Birmingham. Oh dear. It's that time of the year again. The post-Christmas lull when the scene bums along with a few singles and an all-too-brief tour from Sick of It All. So allow me, your fellow opinionated reader, to move things along as I place my cards for Donington 95 firmly on the table. Firstly, with all the other festivals last year offering some great music and immense choice, this year's Donington needs to offer something for the discerning metaller. Nothing's traditional, but plenty that's original and new. After the success of the second stage last year, how about a higher profile for 95 with bands like Dig, Compulsion, Curb Dog, Downset, Clutch, Life of Agony and Pitch Shifter. A vast improvement. As for the main stage and last year's brilliance of the Pants and the Seps, let's keep Gary Sharon and the union of wuss musicians away. Let's face it, Paradise Lost have got to be there or a riot will ensue. How about Machine Head, Anthrax, Carcass, Prong, and a one-off nail bomb set. Unbelievable. And the coveted headliner slot? Maiden, Metallica, Megadeth, or even Slayer? No chance. Let Donington 95 be the year that Lawnmower Death reunite to take Donny by storm. Woody, the metal bozo clown from South Wirral. Gagging for a shagging. I just had to write and inform all you depraved people out there that what a sex beast Scott Wyland Stone Temple Pilots is. Has no one else noticed? Wyland, I'm gagging for your shagging. Please print a pic, as he is the sexiest man to grace the pages of Kerrang, the future Mrs. Wyland from Cleek Heaton. Why is everyone always so negative about Guns N' Roses? Just for the record, I'm one person who actually doesn't want GNR to split, ever. I enjoyed your interview with Slash as it was interesting to hear his point of view about the current GNR situation. However, I don't think it's fair that only Slash's view was shown. I see that Axel may not have run everything by Slash, as he should have done, but I'm sure Slash has his faults too. Good journalism means giving two sides of an argument. So next time you write an article about GNR, let's hear Axel's side of the story too. Melanie Bullivant from Redditch. Will someone please tell Zach Wilde that he's been sussed at last? We all know that he's really in the rednecks. Wave goodbye to your credibility forever, matey, after that Top of the Pops performance. Sarah and the rival kids, Plymouth. I've had enough. I'm very pissed off with you. Here is why. 1. You did it with Metallica and now you're doing it with Bon Jovi. Too fucking much. Variety is the spice of life, after all. Please sort this out. 2. To all those complaining about the action of Paul Timms, have you nothing better to do than moan about the actions of others? I'm sick of reading the inane comments of people who have nothing different to say. I'm not defending his actions, but after having a magazine loads of letter space and a missive from Tim's himself devoted to the subject, I think the topic has been covered enough. 3. Machine Head have been ridiculously hyped. They are not the heaviest band around as anyone into Brutal Truth or Napalm Death will know. I know because I heard their session for the Sunday Rock Show and was grossly disappointed. 4. Any chance of more regular extreme metal coverage? Just now, it only seems to happen once in a blue moon. 5. 
Cubanate deserve to be strung upside down and whipped with nettles until they plead for mercy. Then give them some more. I saw them in Edinburgh with Carcass. The crowd was not impressed. Ah, thanks for that. Kevin Sharp's vocal cords from Blair Gowrie. In reference to KN of Southend, whoever that is, why don't you give your full name? Scared someone might come round and sort you out. Who gives a toss what you think? You wouldn't know what rock was if it smacked you in the face. White Snake are excellent and so are Kiss and Roxette. Why don't you listen to some decent music for a change instead of crap like therapy? Andy Cairns is just an Irish fat slob who can't sing. Cash from Wakefield. Ill communication. Poster Power this week contains five posters. Thunder in Soho, London, January 95. Terrorvision, poll winners take on the world. The Black Crows, Chris Robinson on tour forever. L7, live Susie Gardner and Killing Joke, Jazz the Jester. And as mentioned at the start of this episode, there is no singles this week. So we now move on to the second part of the uh, Grunge Ain't Dead Kerrang special for the week. Super Grunge. Pearl Jam's Mike McCready joins Alice in Chains' Lane Staley and Grunge's new supergroup. In a Kerrang! World exclusive, Kevin Roberts spends New Year's Eve with McCready and Co. in Seattle. New Year's Eve 1994, the end of yet another hugely successful year for Seattle's world famous and equally infamous music scene. Once again, bands from this capital city of grunge dominated the charts in 94, but 1994 was Seattle's most traumatic year since the opening chords of Smells Like Teen Spirit first rang out and altered the course of rock music for forever. Kurt Cobain's shotgun suicide, Pearl Jam's ongoing dispute with Ticketmaster, speculation about the imminent implosion of Alice in Chains and whole bassist Kristen Pfaff's drug overdose all overshadowed Seattle's music in 1994. And yet the music is stronger than ever. Soundgarden Super Unknown entered the US Billboard's charts at an incredible number one. Candlebox ascended to the big lead with over 2 million sales of their debut album. Pearl Jam's Vitology sold more than a million in its first few days of release, almost matching the record-breaking speed of verses. And Nirvana's Unplugged in New York, a release which would probably never have seen the light of day had Kurt Cobain still been alive, seemed a fitting tribute to Cobain and Nirvana. And there's plenty more where that all came from. The music scene in the Northwest has survived the media and industry overkill that followed the release of Nevermind and Ten, times when every major label had A&R men in the city waiting checkbooks in hand for the next sighting of someone with a flannel shirt and a guitar. Despite the city's bad reputation as smack central USA, the Seattle music scene now seems as healthy as ever. Which brings us back to the end of year celebrations in the Jet City. 94 was a long year filled with triumph and tragedy, a fucked up, mixed up time, but now it's time to watch the clock, tick down and welcome in a new year. It's a particularly meaningful time for Pearl Jam's lead guitarist Mike McCready, a man who has battled his own demons this past year and come out on top. McCready will, in less than an hour, kickstart one of the city's most talked about new acts with their first major show. He decides to pass the time before the gig by driving around Seattle to bid good riddance at 94. We end up on top of Queen Anne Hill, a plush residential district overlooking the city. It's a prime vantage point to catch the celebratory firework display above Seattle's most famous landmark, the Space Needle. A curious, futuristic tower built in the 60s which now, prophetically, looks more like an upturned hypodermic syringe. This symbol is particularly apt in a city with one of the most publicised and serious heroin problems in America. Mike's bored. We all are. Around us the pavements are packed with drunken revellers toasting each other and exchanging saliva. Drivers stop their cars in the middle of the street and get out to watch the fireworks, further choking the clogged streets. We're sure it's already past midnight. We'll be stuck in 1994 forever, Mike jokes. It'll be Groundhog Year. We'll never escape. He laughs, then grimaces. 
Come on, come on, he urges under his breath. Let's get out of here. Just moments later, the sky lights up in a blaze of colour and a shining 1995 light is illuminated on top of the Space Needle. It would have been far cooler if they'd just blown up that fucking needle, Mike Spitz. Just sent it flying into the sky. I'd pay to see that. So this is 95, he says, glancing at the crowds. Shall we get out of here right now? As we walk back to his car, Mike turns back to the street partiers. Happy New Year, you monkeys, he shouts. It's time to move on. Mike McCready is nervous. It's the first highly publicised show for Mad Season, the new project band he's formed with Alison Chains' Lane Staley on vocals, Barrett Martin of the Screaming Trees on drums, and blues playing buddy Baker Saunders on bass. It sounds almost too good to be true. Members are three of Seattle's biggest acts in a new group. It's uh, about to happen. Mike admits he's suffering from a little stage fright tonight. It's quite a big step for a little man who, despite being in one of the world's hugest rock bands, has always stuck just outside the spotlight. Now the spotlight is turned on him. I've put this together and kind of masterminded everything, he says. I'm just hoping everything goes well tonight. And yeah, I'm nervous. It seems funny that someone who has played to hundreds of thousands of people across the world, who thought nothing of flashing his ass at 40,000 people at Finsbury Park a couple of years ago, and who's played on several multi-million selling albums, should get butterflies in his stomach about a gig in a small Seattle club. Maybe it's his newfound sobriety. Yes, after abusing alcohol for about 15 years, McCready cleaned up his act last year and checked into a drug and alcohol rehab centre in Minneapolis. Ironically, it's there that he met bassist Saunders, hence Mad Season, was conceived. Baker is just an incredible blues bass player, McCready raves. I've known Lane for about 10 years and we've always talked about working together. And I've always been an admirer of Barrett's drumming from even before he joined the trees. We first got together in Alison Chains' rehearsal studio for a mammoth jamming session and it all fell into place very quickly. We called ourselves the Gacy Bunch after deceased serial killer John Wayne Gacy and played three low-key shows at a small club in the city. They went so well that I just said, let's go into the studio. We put down 10 songs in about 7 days. It's the quickest thing I've ever been involved in. I don't know why it happened so fast. The term Mad Season has been floating around in my head ever since we went to England to mix 10. We were out at Ridge Farm Studios in Surrey and one of the staff used the term to describe the time of year when magic mushrooms come out of the ground. It can also be used on a more personal basis to describe the period of abuse I've put my body through. Both the band and its music has come about as a result of my going through rehab. It's kind of cathartic, a release of all this energy and emotion that I hadn't released in years because I've been drowning them in alcohol for so long. McCready is very frank about his alcoholism, yet the majority of Pearl Jam fans would have no idea that he had a problem. Unlike Kurt Cobain's heroin use, Mike McCready's drinking was not the subject of widespread speculation. I need to be honest and open about it, Mike confesses. It helps me to be like this. There's no point trying to pretend I don't have a problem. I did that for far too long as it is. Going into rehab was just what I needed to do. In the past I've had blackouts, been late for and missed band rehearsals, and so many people were worried about my health. My parents were convinced they were going to find me dead one day. One of the things that spurred me into taking some action was an interview with Eddie just after Kurt's suicide, where he said he really worried about me. That brought it home. Now, not only do I feel so much better, but I have a lot more confidence in myself too, and I can get up early in the morning and get so much more done. There's so much more I can appreciate now I'm no longer in a haze of alcohol. The highs are much higher and the lows don't seem quite as bad either. At one of the new band's earliest low-key shows, Lane introduced the band by saying, we're the Gacy Bunch, an addict and an alcoholic. Is it difficult being sober and in the band with Lane? After all, rumours about his health and alleged addictions are always flying around. I deal with my problems on a personal level, asserts Mike. I'm not going to preach to anyone else. The problem for Lane is that he's constantly under a lot of pressure from outside forces. He's the focal point for Alice in Chains, just as Eddie is for Pearl Jam. You can't imagine what it's like to live like that. 
Is this going to just be a one-off like Temple of the Dog, the grunge supergroup featuring McCready, Vedder, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam, and Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron of Soundgarden, or can you see it going further? I'd certainly like to, but at the moment we're just going to see how it goes, Mike shrugs. Unlike our other bands, there's no pressure at all with Mad Season, so we have the luxury of being able to do as we please. But all our other bands are going to be busy this year. Pearl Jam start rehearsing again this week for a tour of Japan, and we're touring America this summer. Alice in Chains will be making a new LP in the summer, and the trees are off to Australia shortly. We're planning on getting the Mad Season LP, I'm Above, out by April, and there will be a single, River of the Sea, before that. And we've talked about getting back together again in a year or so to see how it all feels then. Has anyone mentioned that dirty word supergroup to you yet? No, he chuckles. You're the first. It doesn't really feel like a supergroup, and that word has such nasty connotations. I don't mind if people want to say that, as long as they're not comparing us to Asia or someone equally awful. It's just another band for each of us, another outlet for our creative and musical expression. I've always enjoyed playing with other people. I think it's important and improves you as a musician. Then again, everyone in Pearl Jam likes to get involved with other projects too. Eddie has been working with Dave and Chris from Nirvana, Stone has his record label Loose Groove and Project with Brad, and Jeff has been doing other stuff too. But this doesn't detract from Pearl Jam. We still will get a kick out of being in the band. If anything, doing other music helps keep us stronger. So fans shouldn't be worried that all this could herald the end of Pearl Jam? No. We still all really enjoy playing in a band together. If anything, the chemistry at the moment is better than ever. We've got Jack Irons playing drums for us now. We wanted him as our original drummer, but he had other commitments. His joining has brought things round full circle to what could have been our original lineup. McCready is undoubtedly the driving force behind Mad Season, and he's loving it. Eddie is the focal point of Pearl Jam, there's no question about that. But Mad Season is something I've put together. More of the responsibility rests on my shoulders, although there are no expectations for this band. We can do exactly what we want. It's completely different to all our other bands. We all contribute to the music, everything was jammed together and Lane has written the lyrics. It has a completely different vibe to Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. It's not better or worse, just different. It seems a lot more blues orientated. Is that deliberate? I do listen to a lot of blues, but I'd hardly call myself an aficionado. I just got into blues at a time when I was listening to too much heavy metal. It helped me out as a guitarist. Meat and Baker was also extremely influential because he's such an incredible player who has played with some exceptional talents like Buddy Guy. I'm excited about this band. I'm excited about the future. Heading off to the gig through the Jam City streets, I asked Mike if he gets recognised a lot and if this makes life in his hometown a problem. Sometimes he nods, but it's not too bad. Sometimes people come up to you and say, you're Stone from Pearl Jam, aren't you? Which is funny. I played a gig with Peter Buck from R.E.M. the other night and there were two drunk Pearl Jam fans there who grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. But usually it's not that bad. I don't go out as much as I used to because I'm not drinking anymore, so that probably helps. Eddie gets it really bad though. It's impossible for him. He can barely move. As if on cue, a car pulls alongside us at a stoplight and the occupants point in our direction. Mike looks over, smiles, then looks back to the road. The passengers seem oblivious to him. There's no response whatsoever to his acknowledgement. As they pull away, they're looking more seriously at the car than at Mike. It turns out they have an identical car from exactly the same lot. More satisfied customers from Bill Byers, Raveva Volvo, Mike laughs. They love me there. Wanted to do lunch. It's like my bank. For years they sent me nasty letters and closed my accounts loads of times. They charged me money for nasty letters they sent me, and now they want me to do an ad for them. I just laughed in their face like, now I have money, I'm okay. When we finally arrive at the venue, the place is going wild. Everyone has seen in the new year, the bar is almost dry, and the toilets are overflowing. 
There's that special feeling of being there at the start of something special, something critical, something to ring up all your friends in the early hours and tell them all about. After a 30 minute delay, these are major rock stars after all, the lights dim and there's uproar. Illuminated by a single white light shining up at his face, the ice core and near translucent Lane Staley steps up to the mic and growls, how you doing, thanks for coming, and the mad season is upon us. 1995 is less than a couple of hours old, already I've witnessed one of its highlights. Happy fucking new year. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the album of the week this week is Behind Closed Doors by Thunder. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets 3Ks. Accused of having become dull old men who sound bitter and desperate, recently singles Kerrang 526, Thunder must be wondering what will be said when the backlash really starts, despite fine shows on their recent UK club trek. It's often hard for any fan of any band to recognise the need for their heroes to progress musically, which is obviously what Thunder are attempting to do on Behind Closed Doors. Yet first impressions did indicate that Thunder appeared to be struggling a little to hit on a new direction, costing them some of the cohesiveness enjoyed on both Backstreet Symphony and Laughing on Judgment Day without actually finding one. Behind Closed Doors isn't as instantly attractive as previous product. It's fair to say that Open a Moth to the Flame is a blatant attempt to bring Thunder into more of a contemporary area with its so-called grunge feel that is more than a hint of Led Zepp to its slinky frame as well. However, Luke, Morley and co are happy to experiment in such areas musically. They're unafraid to court controversy with the frankly excellent preaching from a chair, which defiantly pokes the finger at the likes of Cobain, Vedder and Staley et al in no uncertain terms. The band also excel on the even more epic It Happened in This Town, a sad commentary on the murder of children, and the balladic Till the River Runs Dry wife beating. Danny Bowles' vocals yet again bringing a lump to the throat. I'd question the wisdom though of placing the album's other ballad, I'll Be Waiting, as beautiful as it is, as third song in. With the broody castles in the sand and the mid-tempo pace of both River of Pain and Future Train, there are no complaints. But whilst Fly on the Wall takes on a brighter hue in a live setting, on record, second song in line, it hangs limp and sounds very tame. More so, Thunder's diversion into the funk rock market courtesy of Too Scared, chick backing vocals and all, it doesn't work, certainly not in the context of this album. Still, whether anyone else shares such thoughts is immaterial. The band's high level of consistency on the live front, matched to a loyal following, will ensure their reputation holds true. Besides, far bigger bands than Thunder have released far more disappointing albums. The next review is for Die Healing by St Vitus, reviewed by Phil Alexander, this gets 4Ks. Tis a glorious exposition of doom, witters Kerrang snapperhead Mad Malcolm Dome. Without getting all oldie worldy about it, Die Healing does indeed see St Vitus delivering another slab of unrepentant pounding and mighty mournful metal. An 8-track affair, Die Healing is greatly enhanced by the plate metal production of Harris John's creator Voivod, and the return to the fold of original throat scrote Scott Riegers. Riegers simply possesses the ultimate woeful wail, adding to Dave Chandler's gruesome guitar grinding. On the likes of Dark World, Riegers' titanic tonsil assault is loaded with melodrama and an epic quality. On the likes of In the Asylum, Riegers is simply out of control, while his gravelly growl on Let the End Begin makes for an unsettling slow crawl through Doomsville. 
Vitus dip into parody on the brilliantly blundering sloth and the delightfully dubbed Return of the Zombie. There has always been an element of humour in Vitus's heavier-than-thou stunts, but on this occasion both cuts are redeemed by Chandler's fearsome threat antics. In the wake of last year's skull-drilling platters by Caius, Corrosion of Conformity and The Obsessed, Vitus have delivered their most accomplished album to date. It ain't likely to see the fearsome foursome lauded as the next big thing, but fans of seriously soulful heavy underground metal will revel in this orgy of riff munger sludge and sorrow. Woesome indeed. The next review is for the Interview with the Vampire soundtrack by Various. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this gets 3Ks. Soundtrack albums are crucial money spinners for any major movie. Usually, they are no more than glorified compilation LPs featuring trendy bands whose presence will maximise sales. Interview with a Vampire is different. This soundtrack might feature Guns N' Roses' remake of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, but that apart it is an album featuring only incidental music from the much hyped movie. As such, it's a throwback to the original concept of soundtrack albums, which is both its strength and weakness. The orchestral music provides an atmosphere of doomy, gloomy, gothic intensity, but without the accompanying visuals one is left with a feeling of the surreal. The dark variations in move provided by Elliot Goldenthal's mature score are so disparate from track to track that there is an avant-garde underbelly to the whole affair. In its favour, the album does have a cohesion that brings to mind the film, which is rarely the case with soundtrack records these days. As for Guns' contribution, despite Slash's public detestation of the song and all the controversies surrounding the band, they do justice to the classic song. But should you buy this, only if you're interested in off-the-wall orchestration and want to be reminded of the film. The last album reviewed this week is Hard Times by the Laughing Hyenas. Reviewed by Gordon Goldstein, this gets 4Ks. Fuck the blues. Detroit Motor City's misanthropes are mired in the blacks and have been for nearly a decade. A hard, ugly decade marked by events their music only hints at. Hard Times is the record Nick Cave would have made with John Spencer and Muddy Waters had they got together in a car wreck. Having solidified a rhythm section with ex-Necro's bassist Ron Sikowski and drummer Todd Swaller, it's a more controlled laughing hyenas scratching through the speakers. They've managed to take it down a notch in the blood and scamps department, lending legendary hardman John Brannan room to croon. The result is every bit as gorgeously pained as ever. If it was all bleed-by-numbers nihilism, the Laughing Hyenas' third long player would be unremarkable. Instead, what oozes out of hard-time blues and each dawn I die is soul. Moments like Home of the Blues brim with tradition and respect for the masters. The Laughing Hyenas are a pack that play it like they've lived it. Hard times is putting it mildly. We now come to the final piece of the Grunge Ain't Dead Kerrang special this week. Radio Eddie. The spirit of pirate radio is alive in Seattle and Eddie Vedder's spinning the black circles. Kevin Roberts listens in as rock steady Eddie speaks out and plays exclusive new material from ex-Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl, Soundgarden, Mudhoney and new grunge supergroup Mad Season. Pearl Jam fans across the USA got their first opportunity to hear the band with new drummer Jack Irons when they staged a four hour live radio broadcast from Seattle recently. The band performed two live sets of material from the Vitology album for the show, which was transmitted nationwide to millions of fans. Self Pollution Radio, which was the brainchild of singer Eddie Vedder, also featured live sessions from Mudhoney and Soundgarden, both previewing new material. Mad Season, the grunge supergroup featuring Pearl Jam guitarist Mike McCready and Alice in Chains singer Lane Staley, and sub-pop stars The Fastbacks. 
The show also saw the premiere broadcast of the keenly anticipated new material written and performed by Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl and also featured his former partner Chris Novoselic reading excerpts from the novel he is currently writing. The transmission was broadcast from a warehouse in downtown Seattle owned by Eddie Vedder. It was relayed through Seattle's KNDD, the end station to alternative and rock stations across the country. Similar in intention to Pearl Jam's impromptu broadcast last year from a radio station in Atlanta. Self-Pollution Radio, as it was advertised in the Seattle press, was an attempt to recapture the free spirit of pirate radio and to provide a forum for ideas and political belief, most notably the pro-choice lobby, which are rarely given prominent airtime in the conservative American media. Jingles from former British pirate station Radio London littered the transmission, which was entirely free of advertising. Quite a remarkable achievement in the cutthroat commercial world of American radio. Despite its self-deprecating title, the live broadcast managed to steer clear of becoming too self-indulgent and featured most of the leading lights of the Seattle scene as well as some special guests. Aside from Anchorman Vedder, guest DJs who took the mic included Chris Novoselic, Dee Plakas from L7, Seven Year Bitch and Mike Watt from Firehose. At the end of the show, Eddie Vedder gave out his personal telephone number so listeners who had been unable to get through to him during the show could call with their views over the next couple of days. Self-Pollution Radio kicked off with Pearl Jam performing I Davanita from Vitology. This was followed by an opening address from Vedder. Starting with the immortal words of the Ramones, he began, Hey ho, let's go, self-pollution, air pollution, noise pollution, pre-pollution, face pollution, solution pollution. I don't think so. Not enough solutions to the many complex dynamics these days. I don't know if we've got any proven answers to any of the issues we might bring up tonight, but perhaps you can take them home, sort them out, think about how you feel, perhaps the beginning of change is right in your head. Let your attitudes evolve, this evolution takes place where there is input. The reason we bring this up? Well, we've noticed that our society here in America is opening up their homes to some folks who are overflowing with input, and we've seen potentially dangerous attitudes embraced. We're seeing blatant mistruths treated like the gospel and we're just doing our little bit here to remind a few of you out there that you are not alone in your opposition and you are not in the minority when you vote for change. Perhaps the silent majority is going to have to make some noise. I've never claimed to be a socio-political expert, but I guess I feel compelled to speak out on some issues for no other reason than I have lived through them. Live through this. I have. It's tough. It's tough out there and a lot of people are just trying their best to survive and I think that some situations that have been created could make that impossible. I'm not a politician, I'm just a guy. And we've got politicians behaving like rock stars, and rock stars behaving like, well, rock stars will always be rock stars, but fuck rock stars. Tonight, here we've got musicians, all local, neighbours and friends. We're gonna play for you, they're gonna play for you. In fact, what you've just endured is probably the longest self-speak all evening. Some issues might resurface, like the protection of women's reproductive rights and even the safety of women in our society. Our mothers and sisters, girlfriends and wives, but everyone came to play. I'm glad you tuned in. Pearl Jam self-pollution sets included Spin the Black Circle, Satan's Bed, Corduroy, Not For You, Immortality, Last Exit, Blood, Tremor Christ, Porch and Indifference. Mudhoney previewed three songs from their forthcoming album, My Brother the Cow, Judgment, Retribution and Time, Generation Spokesmodel and What Moves the Heart. Soundgarden performed two new and untitled songs as well as a slightly faster version of their current UK single Fell on Black Days. A Mad Season gave a taste of lifeless death and another untitled cut from their forthcoming Columbia LP, I'm Above, which is out in March. However, for many people the highlight of the show was the first public airing of Dave Grohl's solo work. Grohl's first song up sounded like a typical West Coast style punk band. 
but the second title This Is A Cause proved once and for all that Kurt Cobain was not the only member of Nirvana with an ear for a sucker melody. After it was played, Mudhoney Steve Turner commented, The genius started long ago in D Dane Bramage, the band he was in in 1986. He started out good and kept getting better. Kim Stringfellow from the Fastbacks added her voice to the praise. She said, We went to Guatemala for Christmas and it was really awesome to hear that song while sat on top of the pyramids. And it was the only cassette I took with me, which should tell you how good it is. After reading from his novel in production, Chris Novoselic celebrated the spirit of the occasion. He said, Everyone looks really happy and healthy tonight. It's a really nice scene. People are hanging out. It's really, really wonderful. It's like a community. Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament and guitarist Stone Gossard also joined in the proceedings. Jeff playing a tape of his friend's band Jungle Oats and Stone promoting the forthcoming album by Funk Tinge Weapon of Choice on his Seattle-based Loose Groove label. Towards the end of the show, Veda called Mike Watt at his home in Pedro, California and also attempted to contact Neil Young, who unfortunately wasn't home. Some of the stations carrying the broadcast dropped out as the show overran its scheduled three-hour time slot, but only as a result of prior programming restrictions rather than the content of the show, which was surprisingly non-controversial. At its outset, Self Pollution Radio issued a disclaimer which said, If you are a person easily offended by language commonly used in the street and workplace, we recommend you lock your door, pull the shades, and never venture out of your safe little home again. But despite this warning, there was little on-air swearing, most of the swearing on the show came during Soundgarden's set from singer Chris Cornell and in an outburst from Bikini Kill's Kathleen Hanna, which was captured on Mike Watt's answering machine and played for the audience. So, self-pollution radio proved a real success, but uh, don't give up the day job, huh, Eddie? Small caveat here, for those that have not heard this self-pollution radio, I think it's probably all over the internet. I'm pretty sure I listened to it on YouTube a few years back and it is really really good really really interesting uh, all the bands that play obviously get to hear Foo Fighters for the first time it's a real good snapshot of kind of where the world was in 1995 um, yeah so definitely recommend it if you get a chance Chart Attack and the top 40 albums this week number one is Dookie by Green Day top 20 indie LPs still number one Burn My Eyes Machine Head and the top 20 singles number one is Basket Case by Green Day the reader's chart this week comes from Mandeep Guman from Kent. His chart begins 1. Star Ride Warrior Soul 2. Television Warrior Soul 3. Let's Get Wasted Warrior Soul 4. TV Tan The Wild Hearts 5. Greetings from Shitsville The Wild Hearts 6. You've Gone Wild Skid Row 7. Lounge Jack Nirvana 8. Runaway Train Soul Asylum 9. Shitlist L7 and 10. Snap Your Fingers Snap Your Neck Prom Star Tracks this week is from Chris Robinson of the Black Crows. His chart is uh, 1. Spilt Milk Jellyfish 2. Working Man's Dead The Grateful Dead 3. I've Got My Own Album To Do Ronnie Wood 4. Sweetheart of the Rodeo The Birds and 5. The Best of Poco by Poco Next week in Kerrang Back Issues The Return of the Cockney Rabble Thunder Crack Up Metallica Exclusive Ice Hockey Delays New LP Plus Faith No More UK Tour Details Slayer Biohazard Machine Head, the heaviest tour ever, shredding US live report, and Terrorvision, Led Zeppelin, Extreme, Monster Magnet, and more. Thank you so much for listening, as always. We'll be back next Wednesday, and I look forward to talking to you all then. So until then, look after yourselves and talk to you soon. Bye for now.